0: Hello everybody! You are listening to Incorruptible Massachusetts. This is where we uh, talk about state politics. Uh, We talk a lot about why it's so broken, what we can have here in Massachusetts if we fixed it, and how you can get involved. And today we are going to talk about the budget, uh, the Massachusetts state budget. Uh, They just came out with a draft budget and we're going to talk a little bit about the process and about uh, what's likely to happen Um, as well as what's in the budget. But first, let me introduce my co-hosts. I will start off with Jonathan Cohn.
1: Jonathan Cohn, uh, He, Him, His, activist based out of here in Boston, active on a number of issue and electoral campaigns here in Massachusetts.
0: And Jordan.
2: My name is Jordan Burke-Powers. I use He, Him, I'm based in Worcester and also active on several campaigns.
0: And I'm Anna Callahan Chiher coming at you from Medford um, and uh, involved in a bunch of things. So, yep, first off, just where are we in this process? So in Massachusetts, we have a system where there is one cycle for the whole two years. If you want a bill to be considered, it has to be done in the, you know, presented in the first couple of months. Then there's hearing season, then there's budget season. Uh, there's committee season, and then there's budget season. And so um, give us uh, a little bit of background into the budget aspect of this and where we are in that process.
1: Do you want me to go, or Jordan, do you want to go? I can say a few words about the calendar. So one thing, it's, the budget is one thing that has to, that both kind of by law has to happen every year for them. That what happens is at the end of the January, the governor will introduce the budget the House will then introduce and vote on its budget in April, and the May does it, and then the Senate does in May, and then they spend the time, often strikingly far longer than they should, reconciling those two budgets uh, in conference committee to vote on something. What's wild is in recent years they've been they've kind of been later since they're supposed to finish up by June 30th with the turnover of, of kind of with kind of a fiscal year and they keep running into July all the time. Um, but why would anybody imagine that a democratic house and a democratic Senate would agree on things? Uh, <laughs> okay, so we're, where we are now is that last week that the house released its budget, we voted on next week with the week where we're, where we're meeting, not necessarily when you're listening, is the week of school vacation week in Massachusetts when they're off. But then you have a number of amendments filed by state reps of things that they wanna to try to get get into the budget. And then they'll have it likely over a series of days next week we'll be addressing them in some way or another. Uh, we we'll can talk more about that later before voting on the budget That then goes on to this thing and then activity goes to the Senate. It ta- ends up taking up a lot of um, air, let's say in the legislature that when it's during the budget period they just don't like doing other things because like heaven forbid, they do multiple things at one time, which they can often do when they so choose, but it is often also used as an excuse for not doing things that aren't the budget. So
0: we have, yeah,
1: go ahead. I think you want to tag in on
2: that. No, that's exactly right. And I think, um, you know, the the thing that's different this year about the budget that's uh, different from other years is that Other um, House Ways and Means chairs have just copied and pasted what what Baker did. So what do I mean by that? I mean, they'll literally just copy and paste his budget. They would take a couple hundred million out and then they would bring legislators in and that's where they would do this thing where they basically give legislators their pennies of the budget and say like, we'll give you (coughs) each one of the 160, usually mostly the Democrats, we'll give you a little bit of money So you can say that you got a park or you know help with the school whatever your whatever your pet project is in your district and this is the thing that i would say legislators most if you if you talk to them they would most be like you can't get rid of me i'm super important look at this pennies i got and this is and this is a silly idea because everybody gets it that's how those that's how our state house works they go in they make a request there's a little bit of money set aside that's just basically a slush fund that allows them to then get their pet, their pet projects locally. I'm not against it. Legislators who live locally know what local projects need a little bit of money. It's a good way to ensure that that, you know, park that actually needs to get done gets to the top of the list, right? It's not a terrible thing, but it's not real. It's not, it's not a substitute for real substantive addressing issues that we have before us. But this budget's different. It's not a copy and paste from Governor Baker's budget. It's its own budget. You know, it's doing its own things. It's it, it it um it definitely um is different in a lot of different ways. So, I'll say good for that. That's a good start to and, the process to not sort of copy and paste Baker.
0: <laughs> and by the way, when you say oh, there's a hundred million dollars, that's like you know just little pennies for people to to have in a slush fund. It's a fifty billion dollar budget. Right? So, right, a hundred million sounds like a lot of money, but like in terms of a state budget. 50 billion dollars is a lot of
2: money and 100 million in there is is pretty small potatoes yeah as it's, a discretionary I it, right and i think importantly and it shouldn't be more than that like it's not it's a, i think it's like 300 million it's not a lot if you think about like there's 160 reps there's you know all of them have 351 towns right that's like basically you know that's basically like a million per town like that's not actually a lot that's maybe one project right you can get a park. For that but not much else right like it's just it's actually not that much money so you know i think like everybody it's good that they do it it's not i'm not against it it's just it's not it is to your point it's such a small part it's a drop in the bucket of the actual budget as a whole um and when you think about it spread across 351 towns it's not actually a lot of money yeah
0: so in the past there has been very little for legislators to actually change and do and decide in this budget um which is why we have an entire podcast about amendments. We'll talk about that in, in a second, but, uh, but that's a whole other thing that we're about to discuss. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what in this budget is like unexpectedly good? And I'll, I'll jump in with one. You know, I think um, there are so many things in our um, prison industrial complex. There's so many things about being incarcerated that have to change. Um, I mean, it's the list list is so ridiculously long, but, um, among them are things like, you know, prisoners are, uh, charged for all sorts of things that should be free. They're, for example, they're not fed enough food and then they're charged ridiculous amounts of money to buy food at the commissary. Um, they are charged ridiculous amounts of money to have a phone call with their loved ones. Um, and so one thing that did change um, is that they are now in the budget is um, eliminating fees uh, for phone calls. Um, so there are now going to be no cost calls. And I imagine that's an unbelievably minuscule, tiny portion of the budget just to pay for the phone calls. Um, but wow. Hallelujah. Thank you. At least we got that one thing and it's kind of a surprise. So I think we're really happy. To see that
2: it's a big surprise and it's a good thing they're doing. Um, there's, you know, it's all the things that the legislature doesn't wanna do. It's caring for people who are at the margins. It's taking on very large corporations who make a lot of money off the poor. I mean, this is a huge industry with large corporations that they are bankrupting essentially, if, at least from the state of Massachusetts. And also, you know, on the positive side, it's even for people on the off chance that the police actually captured the right person to put them in jail, which is suspect at best. Um, you know, what we know to be true is that for people who are battling addiction, battling on un- being unhoused, battling some of the mental health um, things that, and, and are the reason people end up in prison, being able to talk to loved ones is the number one thing that tethers them to the outside world. The number one thing that can encourage people to not end up back in prison is having strong ties to family and friends, people who will bring them back into community once they are out and help them manage whatever crises they're gonna be going through. And so, having people then pay, having poor people pay money they don't have for phone calls they can't afford only creates barriers and increases recidivism. So, this is just an all around good policy. Um, if you care deeply about these folks, if you care deeply about people, and even if you don't, if you just want to save money and don't want people to go back to prison, it's just a good policy. Like it's a good policy. We know um, from several studies that it's really effective. So big on them for doing that. Um, there's some other good stuff in there that I was surprised to see myself. One of them that they're touting is, um, you know, increase uh, increase funding for childcare. I think that that's really good. It's a far it's again, a drop in the bucket. It's 30% of what, um, 30% increase what they're doing. It's a small part of what they should be investing in childcare, but you know, it, it does, it will raise wages and help out a little ease some of the increase in cost of childcare. Um, I can tell you that I, you know, when we had, I think many people in Massachusetts find paying for childcare is like getting an early, um, college education it's for insane. kids. It's, it's so super crazy. expensive. So, Anything we could do to tackle that is gonna make a huge difference in people's lives. Um, and then the other one that I thought was really excellent that I wanted to highlight is support for renters um, and real money being put towards um, housing programs. So rental assistance and programs to help people become housed. Those are actually trying to tackle some of the problems that people have. Again, it's the, after, after decades of not doing the right thing on these issues, it is not enough to go back but it is a right. It is a un, unquestionable big step in the right direction. Like I think those are good things that they've done. Um, yeah, and there, there's lots of good folk. There's lots of good stuff. Um, the other, the last one I'll, I'll mention, if Jonathan, you want to mention some others, is the you know. So the federal government has basically ended the free school meals program. That is an important program to ensure that kids have, that um, have uh, food. I think it, the other piece that people miss is that it, when you start to um, say some kids have to pay, some kids don't, you make these bifurcations, it creates distinctions in the classrooms that are not needed and sometimes also creates pressure. Parents are paying for things they might not have money for. It is pennies on the dollar for the for the federal government and the state government to just buy it all as a whole as opposed to parents trying to scrounge up money here and there so it's an economic stimulus in a small way it's a way to ensure people are hungry who are um, people who are hungry get food it's a really good program so now kids at least if they're in school they will get breakfast and they will get lunch and sometimes a snack um, and depending on your school district sometimes food also at home so these are just smart investments
0: it reduces bureaucracy. Like I was, I was the only kid in my high school to get free lunches and I was high school, 2000 people. And I, every week I had to go to the counselor's office and I had to like provide, you know, whatever information and blah. I mean, it was just like, it's like, why am I as a high school kid? It's just so ridiculous. It wasn't even, you know, I'm sure my family had to, you know, provide a bunch of bureaucratic BS for that to happen. And then I had to go through it too. So the whole thing was just ridiculous.
1: Yeah. I I feel like that just underscores the value of kind of, universal public goods in that whenever you're trying to add any type of income restriction or eligibility requirements what you're doing isn't so much of keeping out those who can afford it you're keeping out all the people who, who can't afford the thing that you're talking about and don't have the time or the energy to do all of the paperwork that you are asking them to do to get the thing that they can't afford. Because it's almost like, why do you think that like, why do you think that they have all of the time in the world to like yeah. to, to navigate what is often like often not in plain language? Paperwork. And so rather than creating it's it's kind of speaks to the general problem is that when you end up having things becoming very income restricted, it's about viewing policy from the perspective of whom can let's say like a donor class have sympathy for uh, and designing policies that narrow their focus on that, rather than what are the what are need, needs that exist and how can we fill that in an equitable and efficient way. Oh. And it's always more equitable and more efficient to do it universally.
0: Yeah. Uh- Jonathan, do you have any policies to add that you think were good in the budget? Or do you want to start off with stuff that's missing from the budget? Because one to thing, about one
1: that thing I well. can say that's not in the budget, that it's good that's not in the budget, is Charlie Baker had come out with this proposal to just give a tax cut to rich people, um, which is one of Charlie Baker's favorite policy ideas. Uh, so known, and it, it was good to see that the legislature just kind of tossed that aside entirely. It was rather angering earlier this year when the media largely mirrored Charlie Baker's talking points about his proposals, especially around the estate tax or other things uh, that were accompanied with very modest tax-related proposals for anybody who isn't in that economic, kind of that income threshold, uh, was somehow about, about helping the middle class and, and, and kind of and working people when the vast majority of all of the money from the tax cuts he was proposing are upward redistribution of wealth.
0: That's always it's- how they talk about it. Right. It's always about the little guy needing a tax
1: break.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the the chamber came out this week saying that they care deeply about seniors. And (laughs) I can't even get it out. The idea that the chamber cares about these people, seniors and other folks getting tax breaks. Um, And
0: I have to to jump in and remind people, I always thought the chamber of commerce was like some sort of government entity before I got involved in politics. The chamber (laughs) of commerce. Is not yeah. <laughs> publicly anything it has nothing to do with you or me or anything. It's a bunch of businesses, for profit corporations getting together so that they can get their policies passed to make more profit off
2: of us. And I think, I think importantly, again, it, it's almost always, um, it's almost always, uh, there it's it's always the large cor- like they're not helping small businesses either, like they, yeah. they trot them out. They try yeah. out small businesses whenever they're in front of the things, but the people they care about are the WalMarts, the insur- the big insurance executives, right? So these are the worst things. But anyway, so yeah, I mean the the tax cut, the tax cuts for rich people out of way out the door, is on its face ridiculous. Um, we don't need more tax cuts for rich people um, in the state of Massachusetts. So I thought that that was, I agree. I think it's good that it's missing. Um, I would have. I, I myself would have liked to see more investment in taking climate change seriously. I would have liked to see more yeah. investment in transportation, and not just more money for transportation, but making it more accessible and making it faster and more reliable. Um, you know, there was a push. There was. Um, you know, there was talk about electrifying the the um, commuter rail. That should be something that's in the budget. That could be something we give money towards. That could be something we're pushing. Um, it is. It is weird that we basically haven't updated our technology around trains since the nineteen forties. Meanwhile, like it shouldn't take so long to go from Worcester to Boston, but it does because the tracks are poor. To the state's credit, they have been updating the tracks, but tracks—you know—we're nineteen forties technology. Like it's just we we can do better than this. So I think that there could be more done around taking climate change seriously, especially considering. That the, you know, the IPCC report says clearly that we need to do more to go backwards or we're all screwed.
0: Yeah, they keep saying that every time the IPCC is like, which report? Oh, yeah, every report. Every time the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, comes yeah. out with a report, they're always saying, if we don't do a lot more, radically, wildly more than we're doing, we are effed. Yep. Every report they have. It doesn't matter which report you're talking about.
1: The um, other thing I would note that like we do have in terms of just like long-standing structural problems that the budget doesn't really address, Like with higher ed, Massachusetts has, has been disinvesting from higher ed for decades. So it, it's, it's still not at the level. And even though I think that they've done a better, I haven't read the, the analysis I need to on this, but I think that they've done, that they're improving when it comes to K 12, but it's, Improving still doesn't capture the fact that how much schools have struggled during COVID and how much more money that there will be needed for like social and emotional learning or even for like building upgrades that that we definitely that we definitely need.
0: But I will say they are actually funding the um, Students Opportunity Act, right? Yeah, that that which they have not always funded properly. Yeah. They, they, they pass the law, and this is a classic thing that we have talked about before. They will, if they're forced to, they will pass some law. And if they don't like it, they just won't fund the program. I mean, it's unbelievable. So, and no, and no one is held to task over the fact that they are literally not doing the thing that is in the law that they must do. Um, but in this case, they are now funding, at least for this year, They're funding what they voted on um, and what an amazing huge coalition of education groups managed to get passed. And so the Student Opportunity Act is going to be funded for for this, this budget.
2: I think it's important to note that they are depending on money from the federal government to fill in those things. And they're basically waiting on us, the voters to pass the amendment to the constitutional amendment on, on, on the um, you know fair share amendment. Like they are counting on us to do that work so that they don't have to do any other work around raising taxes. So, um, you know, that is, they are the, the long, yes, they did it this year and they should be lauded for doing it. And they're depending on us to fix their problem <laughs> around funding our schools. Um, you know, there is a little bit more money for the UMass system to Jonathan's point, but it's still underfunded. Um, compared to what it should be. You know, state colleges essentially now are um, almost the same as private universities as their costs, which is ridiculous. Um, And, you know, the the increases are gonna be helpful, but UMass is again increasing its tuition and the tuition is actually low because the fees are what gets you. So um, we were looking at, for example, my wife teaches at a public university in Massachusetts. And we were looking at what she gets off if my daughter decided to go to that university and it's $900 of the 21,000 she would have to pay. <laughs> They're like free tuition, but the $900 is only tuition. The rest are fees. Wow.
0: That's
2: so crazy. like, you know, that's how they get around. They've been, they've been saying this thing, Oh, we put a freeze on, on tuition, but that is no longer how universities get you. So that is also an uh, important no- notice, but the more money there should be helpful. But again, it's just too little. It's just too little.
0: So um, unless there's anything else you guys want to jump in on in terms of what's missing from the budget. We, we have, you know, we I'm sure we could pour through the hundreds of pages in this budget and find a lot of things that we disagree with. But before we end today, I want to make sure we talk about what always happens, which is <laughs> amendments to the budget. And uh, this, you know, it seems like you would just, oh, great, well, let's just amend bunch a little tiny bit and we'll you know, add a little here, we'll remove a little there. Um, but that, that's not primarily what happens during the amendment process, or at least that's not the part that we have a little bit of, take a little bit of issue with. It's people whose bills did not come out of committee. <laughs> Sometimes a committee, the majority of the people in that committee co-sponsor the bill, right? But somehow that bill failed out of the committee anyway. And then they just take the entire bill, and they write it as an amendment, and they throw it into the budget, and then right before they vote on it, they pull it out again. I mean, this whole thing is just so ridiculous, and I would love to have, I, we have a whole, we're not going to spend a lot of time because we have an entire podcast that's dedicated exclusively to this amendment thing, so look back at our um, records for uh, for that one. But let's just spend a couple minutes talking about amendments.
1: Yeah, one thing I'll just quickly tag on there is one thing that can often be confusing if you're first starting to look at the budget process or even if you know about it is is what's called consolidated amendments. So that there are always, especially when it comes to budgets, lots of amendments filed. There are 1,521 amendments filed to the current budget and they're not going to consider them one by one, right? They don't have the time they could do, right? Or they might have the time, but they want to do other things at the time. Uh, and so they categorize them. So what ends up happening is that they take, okay, all of the budgets that have to do with, inf- budget amendments that have to do with environment, we're gonna put, the, we're going to take all of them together. And when you see that consolidated amendment, it looks to you when you like, oh, so they just combined all of these amendments, many of them good and passed them. That's what this consolidated amendment is. But if you read the text, it's actually, they categorize all those amendments they toss all of the text to the side of all those amendments and they choose a few earmarks among them to get in. And so it has, it's something that can be very confusing at first, because you think clearly all of those things that are bundled in that consolidated amendment must be in that consolidated amendment when it is really, when it's not that at all. And it's just a way of dispensing with them rather than meaningfully advancing them.
0: So by earmarks, you mean they just pick like three or four out of you know exactly 400. They'll pick three or four,
1: and the other ones basically get trashed. Exactly, you'll just see a few line items that they've added of like 20 million dollars for this park or some or whatever like uh, like that is all that actually ends up in it. And sometimes when people do file policy amendments, as you were talking about, they get consolidated into that amendment. It's like, oh wow, they just passed that. That's in that consolidated amendment now. <laughs> What they did is pass pass a park for some (laughs) Parks are good, they're just not, they're not policy.
0: Jordan, I know you have many thoughts on amendments.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it just drives me crazy. Um, You know, this thing will happen and we'll get all of these requests for amendments um, to support from activists to support amendments. And so the question I want folks who are listening to ask a question is, is this something that will actually be passed through the amendment process, or is this just pie in the sky pretending to be moving on this issue? And if it is a big issue that you want to move through the move through the budget, the question you need to be asking advocates are is, is the legislator actually gonna make people vote on it or are they just gonna dump it? Because again, per that longer conversation, mostly what happens is they ask us to do all this work to get people to sign on. And then the legislator legislator themselves just agrees to not have anybody vote on it. So if nothing is proposed and nothing is voting on, nothing happened. You may pretend something happened, but nothing actually happened. (laughs) Unless people vote on it, nothing happened. So if people are being requested to (laughs) to, to, to advocate for things being added to the amendment, do some evaluations, money for things that are like line item budgets, right? So for example, I got, we got asked to, um, I was asked to support stuff, um, supporting the unhoused. That's likely to go in, right? Like that's something you can advocate for, um, you know, a couple hundred million dollars for here, a couple hundred million dollars for there. We should be asking our legislators to sign on to those. And those are things that might go in, but those bigger issues, those things that are just unlikely to go in, you should use your discerning thing about what the request is, or maybe they are going to actually have to vote on it. And that would be fantastic. To be clear, I want them to have to vote on those things. Mm-hmm. I think legislators should have to go on the record about their beliefs and policies. <laughs> I think that if you are a legislator, you need to actually legislate. So <laughs> we need to know if you support the things or not, like if you support these things to make people's lives better or not. So um, that's my that's my sort of shorter version of it but yes it does the process drives me crazy um it's like they pretend to legislate we pretend to lobby them yes exactly, exactly except
0: except that the people doing the lobbying aren't pretending right they're they're like actually <laughs> taking time no i'm kidding, sorry, yeah, they're no, taking sure. time out of their days they're taking time out of their work taking time away from their families they're like yeah. doing this stuff like adding things to their tasks to their to-do list and they're doing all this stuff with the belief that it will have an impact mm-hmm. and so i want to i want to mention that Um, Jordan, that's not just a task for the people being asked to lobby. It's also a task for these organizations that are asking people to lobby. So, you know, if you have an organization, big or small, volunteer, you know, a small volunteer organization in your own town or, you know, an organization that's an advocacy organization for a specific uh, policy, any of those, if you are requesting that people spend their time, please check Mm -hmm. in with the legislator in question, and with others who are working on this policy to to get an understanding, is this this even gonna go up for a vote? Because how often, like nine times out of 10, it doesn't, or six Mm -hmm. times out of 10, or whatever, like some majority of the time, that amendment is never going to be voted on. And, and people know that it's not going to be voted on. And so this request that you spend your time is actually just busy work, unfortunately.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. Well, uh, final words, final words on the budget. Uh, when When is the process over? So the Senate will do its budget <laughs> in May and then is supposed to be voted on in June but sometimes it gets pushed to July so we can look forward to hearing these requests throughout the process. Is there anything else that uh, we want to throw in about the budget before we close up for today?
1: I think we, cover, I think we covered the main, the main things, but just in general, uh, that if there are specific requests that you have in your legislators, always they work for you. They should, they, should, they should listen to you even if they don't. <laughs> Indeed.
0: Wonderful, thanks so much everybody. We'll see everybody next week.
1: Yeah.